Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman, and here on episode 10, we'll have a visit with the great novelist and made member of my own family, Mario Puzo. This is from a forward I wrote for an anthology of 1950s men's adventure magazine stories called Weasels Ripped My Flesh. Who are today's equivalent of yesteryear's men's adventure magazine writers? Are they frat boys who sit before plasma TVs, downing Dos Equus beers as they grind out computer code for guerrilla warfare video games? Are they Hollywood hustlers who write by committee for network TV? Skateboarding editors of Lad Mags about consumer gadgets, cars, and mud wrestling. Their world is hard to romanticize when compared to the Mad Men of Madison Avenue. I still cherish childhood memories of the magazine management offices where I visited my father in the early 60s. Men were men, women were secretaries. Typewriters winged, banged, and whizzed through the cigar smoke. Artists painted magnificent action covers at their easels. Even Stan Lee worked there, a one-man operation in a small office next to my father's. I was unaware of the angst and misery some of these men suffered, but they all loved the office. My father, novelist Bruce J. Friedman, was the editor of four men's adventure magazines in the 1950s and early 60s, a company called Magazine Management that put out about 100 magazines a month you know, men's adventure, women's confession mags, even Marvel comics. Their offices were on Madison Avenue, similar to, but not nearly as opulent as, the Mad Men TV series. It was a bustling New York newsroom, a fraternity of hard-typing men and muscle-bound illustrators at easels. Corkboards dripped with clippings and memos. The moment I learned to hunt and peck on a typewriter, by first to second grade, I banged out a page, thrust it in my father's lap, and demanded... Publish it! The Adventure Mags provided a training camp and day job for a generation of up-and-coming novelists and screenwriters. My dad hired Mario Puzo, who'd been working as a government clerk for 10 years, onto the team in 1960. Puzo became just about my father's closest friend for the next 40 years. In 1966, three years before The Godfather, he named one of the characters Josh in his children's book, The Runaway Summer of Davy Shaw. I posted his inscription from my copy on our website at blackcracker.fm. Here's Mario in 1984, when I interviewed him for a 30th anniversary issue of one of those mags. When I was working on The Godfather, I was doing three stories a month. I was writing book reviews for New York Times, Book Week, Time Magazine. I wrote a children's book. Uh, Runaway Summer of Baby Shaw? Yeah. All this was, you know, all at one time. I had like uh, four years of really, I don't know how I'm knocked out means of words, you know. Four years of endless energy. Yeah, yeah. Springing out of desperation. Out of supporting, a, just supporting a family. Yeah. Mario was not a character, not a public speaker. And he gave very few interviews. 
because they came out sounding like someone he didn't know. He was all writer. Except for once or twice, he wouldn't appear on TV. It's not a writer's medium, he said, back in the era when most serious writers avoided the idiot box. His greatest power was his imagination. He was a domestic guy, a family man working to raise five kids. He didn't hit the jackpot until 1969, when The Godfather became the fastest-selling book in history, bigger than Gone with the Wind. It sold nine million in the first two years. Three years later, the movie became the highest-grossing film to date, also breaking records held by Gone with the Wind. Mario's small group of fellow writers, the guys back at the office that he just retired from, were absolutely overjoyed for him. He learned his trade there. Did you um, use a lot of your own war experiences in those stories, or did you just... I used to love to do research, like when I wrote an adventure story about uh, the Arctic, I would read all the Arctic books, you know, and I became an expert on the Arctic. It was a great deal of fun, because uh, then I did an article on sharks, which was fascinating, and it never occurred to me that it would make a novel or a movie, you know? Yeah. Did you see this thing, by the way? No. But that... I know it pretty well. The story of this thing, I read in a book, and I still remember it because it was such a good story about the scam. But again, it never occurred to me it would make a movie. Mario Puzo single-handedly invented the entire mafia genre in popular culture. That's why you've had hundreds of books, movies, TV series video games, and even Godfather pizza parlor chains ever since. He mostly made the mafia up so that even the mafia itself believed this was their history. Before writing The Godfather, he never met an honest-to-God gangster in his life. He heard neighborhood stories growing up poor in Hell's Kitchen in the 1920s and 30s, and he secretly based The Godfather, Vito Corleone, on his mother, what the Godfather said were things Mario Puzo's mother would have said. But he wasn't interested in the movie business and what it did to novelists, and preferred to stay out of it when they made The Godfather. But one day he read in the paper that Danny Thomas wanted to star in it. He panicked. Personally, his choice was Marlon Brando. So he got involved and wrote the first draft. He was able to call Brando to talk, but Brando wasn't all that interested, and Brando knew the studio, Paramount, wouldn't want him. He was no longer bankable. So if not Danny Thomas, or maybe even Marlo Thomas, the studio preferred Anthony Quinn or Ernest Borgnine. Just imagine. When Coppola came on board, he and Puzo rewrote Mario's first draft. There are two camps, the Coppola camp and the Puzo camp, and they argue over who's most responsible for what some consider the greatest movie script ever written. I am, of course, of the Puzo camp all the way. My father tells me the story of how, after writing almost ten movies, which included co-writing the first two Christopher Reeve Superman movies, Earthquake, The Cotton Club, and the three Godfather films, Mario Puzo felt he really didn't know formally how to write a screenplay, so maybe he should learn. So he picked up a book on how to write screenplays. On the very first page, the book declared what it considered the most perfect screenplay ever written, The Godfather. Mario put down the book and went back about his business. The funniest thing is when the FBI came up to investigate us and the story we made up about Russia. Which one was that? Oh, I forget, but what happened was uh, we used to work these uh, print photo 
commercial about people on the beach. And it was, we used the photo. This is a group of underground workers. And some, you know, one of those bullshit things. Yeah. And the FBI came up there, asked us to identify them. And the whole story was made up, you know. Did you tell them that? Finally, we had to tell them that, yeah. And were they pissed off, or did they just shrug? No, just one way. They, they talked to Bernie Garfield. They dealt in big emotions at the men's magazines of the 50s and 60s. Animals who nibbled soldiers to death, Nazis drowning in boiling chocolate, World War II battles both real and imagined, stuck-up rich women seduced by car mechanics. Puzo, a veteran, became the master of World War II battles at magazine management, and when they ran out of battles to write about, he made ones up. World War II veterans wrote into the magazine to correct him on details they remembered, although the battles were invented. Was there ever any material predecessor to The Godfather in the magazine management? Based on The Godfather? Well, related to that. No, I, you know, the funny thing is, I don't think I ever wrote anything about gangsters. There were usually pure adventure stories dealing with the war or some exotic locale. The magazine didn't print gangster stuff. Never. I don't say never, but uh, that was not part of our repertoire, they say. Did you ever do a story on Vietnam, a fake battle that took place there? Yeah, I think I did one or two, but they were absolute poison. The readers didn't like to read about them. And that was very early in Vietnam, you know. We, we used to do stories how... Uh, we used to emphasize that Vietnam only had poison sticks and stuff like that. Like how the poison stick army beat America's modern, ultra-modern weapons, you know, shit like that. And it never went over? No, they hated it. I wonder that, why. Well... It was going on right at the time. It, it well, just didn't have the... Well, also, we weren't the heroes. But just like the Korean War, uh, we used to call that the no-fun war. World War II was the fun war, you know? Yeah. And the Civil War, you can get some mileage out of the Civil War. You get, you can get some mileage out of World War One, you know? And World War Two was a bonanza. But Korea and Vietnam were losers. Mario never thought about writing movies until he was thrust into the game. Years later, they started mining his old magazine management stories to turn into films. Although the format of these stories were perfect scenarios for f- movies, he didn't sense that at the time. The book bonuses, which were the long stories, were very much like movie scripts. You know, when I came to do movie scripts, essentially what I did was write a book bonus with, uh, you know, it broken up into dialogue and description of scenes. It was a very close relationship because the economy was the same. You know, you had to be very, very uh, economical. You had to cram as much action and plot as possible, you know, into a short space. Did you sense at that time that it was uh, exactly like writing a movie script? Or you no, didn't even because think I, about I was never, at that time I was never interested in writing movies. It never occurred to me that someday I would be, you know, Mario's school teachers told him another war was impossible after World War I. But then he went off for five years as a soldier in World War II, 
and said he loved every minute of it. Gambling, broads, the fraternity of men at war. It was his escape from working in the rail yards on 10th Avenue, where the men in his family toiled. I rode a bridge too far for them, you know, that story of the Arnheim invasion. Yeah. And after you got through reading my story, you thought the Allies won the, the battle, not the Germans. Just that your father used to scare me to death and say, we got the yellows, and I, I hadn't even started the story yet. Would you look at the illustration first? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you had to write a story because they had a good illustration. You had to build a story around the illustration. Seven graves to Munich in the magazine. Right. And then I wrote it as a movie script, Seven Graves to Rogan. I made a lot of money on it because I had it optioned about four times. And then finally it was made into a terrible movie where I had my name taken off the screenplay. But I got credit, you know, with the story by Mario Puzo. I'm going to read from one of my favorite Mario Puzo books, a nonfiction collection called The Godfather Papers came out in 1972. I wish they'd put it back in print. This is from the first chapter. As a child in my adolescence, living in the heart of New York's Neapolitan ghetto, I never heard an Italian singing. None of the grown-ups I knew were charming or loving or understanding. Rather, they seemed coarse, vulgar, and insulting. And so later in my life, when I was exposed to all the cliches of lovable Italians, singing Italians, happy-go-lucky Italians, I wondered where the hell the movie makers and story writers got all their ideas from. At a very early age, I decided to escape these uncongenial folk by becoming an artist, a writer. It seemed then an impossible dream. My father and mother were illiterate, as were their parents before them. But practicing my art, I tried to view the adults with a more charitable eye and so came to the conclusion that their only fault lay in their being foreigners. I was an American. This didn't really help because I was only half right. I was the foreigner. They were already more American than I can ever become. But it did seem then that the Italian immigrants, all the fathers and mothers that I knew, were a grim lot always shouting, always angry, quicker to quarrel than embrace. I did not understand that their lives were a long labor to earn their daily bread, and that physical fatigue does not sweeten human natures. The 1970s TV series starring Mr. T, the A-Team, was a direct ripoff of Mario's stuff. Which? The Lorch team. L-O-R-C-H? L-O-R-C-H, yeah. I turned that into a movie script that's an option, you know. They got the idea from, I think, you know, from uh, that story I wrote. Mario Puzo is my father's territory, so I'm merely relating details that both Mario and my father have already written. But in the early 1960s, I remember Dad bringing Mario home from the office for dinner and my parents, Bruce and Ginger, always making such a fuss over him. This short, fat Italian guy who was my father's assistant. They thought he was so special, and Mario felt honored when Bruce allowed him to select the cartoons for the magazines, a special privilege my dad had kept for himself. 
And when Mario would call my father at home, if our nanny, or whatever you'd call her, Mrs. Sullivan picked up, he'd have long conversations with Mrs. Sullivan. Once when I picked up, he talked to me for an hour, just asking about school and things like that. My dad remembers when Mario showed him the title of his new book, In Progress, The Godfather. I don't know. Sounds a bit domestic, my dad said. When Mario first presented the idea to his book editors at Athenaeum, he couldn't even get an advance. He wrote this in the Godfather papers. I was 45 years old and tired of being an artist. Besides, I owed $20,000 to relatives, finance companies, banks, and assorted bookmakers and Shylocks. It was really time to grow up and sell out, as Lenny Bruce once advised. So I told my editors, okay, I'll write a book about the mafia. Just give me some money to get started. They said no money until we see a hundred pages. I compromised. I wrote a ten-page outline. They showed me the door again. There is no way to explain the terrible feeling of rejection, the damage, the depression, and weakening of will such manipulation does to a writer. But this incident also enlightened me. I had been naive enough to believe publishers cared about art. They didn't. They wanted to make money. Mario also wrote that in 1969, when he was behind 20 grand in bills, just a workaday writer trying to support a big family, he got the call that his new book had just received an advance paperback sale before the hardcover was even out. $410,000. That's like $5 million today. Mario had written that he was the chooch of the family, the guy amongst his brothers who was never expected to go anywhere. The real men of his family worked in the rail yard on 10th Avenue, so he called his mother to tell her how much the advanced paperback rights had just sold for. 40000 she asked. No, 400000 Don't tell nobody, she said. How many pages could you tell? Once you did all the research, you read through the books, how many pages would you uh, Well, story? I used to do a book bonus, which is at least 60 pages. There was controversy about the Johnny Fontaine character in The Godfather as to whether it was really based on Sinatra. Mario wrote about this in The Godfather papers when at Chasen's, a millionaire friend of his dragged him over to meet Sinatra. Here's what happened. The millionaire made the introduction. Sinatra never even looked up from his plate. I'd like you to meet my good friend Mario Puzo, said the millionaire. I don't think so, Sinatra said, which sent me on my way. But the poor millionaire didn't get the message. He started over again. I don't want to meet him, Sinatra said. Meanwhile, I was trying to get past the right-hand man and get the hell out of there. So I heard the millionaire stuttering his apologies, not to me, but to Sinatra. The millionaire was actually in tears. Frank, I'm sorry. God, Frank, I didn't know. Frank, I'm sorry. But Sinatra cut him short and his voice was now the voice I had heard while making love as a kid, soft and velvety. He was consoling the shattered millionaire. 
It's not your fault, Sinatra said. I always run away from an argument, and I have rarely in my life been disgusted by anything human beings do, but after that I said to Sinatra, listen, it wasn't my idea. And then the most astounding thing happened. He completely misunderstood. He thought I was apologizing for the character of Johnny Fontaine in my book. He said, and his voice was almost kind, who told you to put that in the book? Your publisher? I was completely dumbfounded. I don't let publishers put commas in my books. Finally, I said, I mean about being introduced to you. Time has mercifully dimmed the humiliation of what followed. Sinatra started to shout abuse. I remember that, contrary to his reputation, he did not use foul language at all. The worst thing he called me was a pimp, which rather flattered me since I've never been able to get girlfriends to squeeze blackheads out of my back, much less hustle for me. I do remember his saying that if it wasn't that I was so much older than he, he'd beat the hell out of me. I was a kid when he was singing at Paramount, but okay. He looked 20 years younger. But what hurt was that here he was, a northern Italian, threatening me, a southern Italian, with physical violence. This was roughly equivalent to Einstein pulling a knife on Al Capone. Mario Puzo was born in the Italian ghetto of New York's Hell's Kitchen in 1920. My favorite books of his that I heartily recommend are The Fortunate Pilgrim, about Hell's Kitchen, and his novel Fools Die, and his two nonfiction books, Inside Las Vegas and The Godfather Papers. He left us in 1999. Among his last words were, at least I won't have to learn the internet. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and links to books. We'll see you next time.